Going Home, Episode 4, Lost and Looking. Chapter 11 The time has come to speak of the small towns that are scattered throughout southern Ontario. Since the 1970s, small Ontario towns have more or less become bedroom communities where people just eat and sleep and all pleasures and commerce are carried out in nearby cities. To understand the zenith of a small southern Ontario town, you have to go back back to at least the 1950s, when every small town had a bank and grocery store to at least one restaurant, a couple of gas stations, and of course schools. Then you had your churches, Catholic and Protestant. Forget about Hindu, Muslim, and Buddhist. They weren't even on the horizon. Other places to gather were the Legion Hall, a Boy Scout Hall, and a Girl Guide Club, and a lot of other clubs as well, like Lions, Masonic Lodges, Eastern Stars, and on and on. Back then, clubs were big in small towns. And of course, you had a barber shop for the men and a few hair salons for the women. As mentioned in an earlier chapter, keeping everything on the tracks was a town-hired cop and as well, a town-hired handyman who mostly graded the roads and put up with grouchy seniors and their complaints about garbage. Things could be boringly ordinary on the weekdays, but come Saturday, farmers came into town to buy their groceries and such, to get ready for the following work week. And it seemed to me like every Saturday night there was a town dance. A big old whoop-de-doo before the Sunday church, please forgive. I'll shift gears here a bit and try to dissect small towns even further. Let's use a dog as a metaphor. And let's say that one day this dog wanders into town and sets up shop. He gets fed and tolerated, and, but he also gets his ass kicked a lot. Then one day he just gets tired of being kicked in the ass. So he up and bites his little ass kicker. A grade seven boy to be exact. Anyone could have guessed that profile. Uh-oh, we got trouble. Half the town wants to teach the dog a lesson, and the other half think the boy had it coming. And don't you know that he did? Anyways, the whole business gets laid out at the feet of the town council. Half the town is all for shooting the dog, and the other half is all for shooting the kid. And of course, the whole affair gets put over to the next council meeting. Then comes the calm before the storm. In the pool hall, men walk around the tables, sinking balls in silence. Gossip and banter have all but left the building. Same at the quilting bees and the legion and the lions and the eastern stars. Quiet. You could cut the tension with a knife. You hear a lot of something has to be done on both sides until somebody in the middle of the night runs a dog over with this car. Dog's not dead, but Doc Murphy has to amputate one of the legs. Right front one, to be exact. Now we got a hornet's nest that goes like this. One of the dog lovers takes the dog home, but of course this is a hot fin type dog. The dog used to roaming and rambling, so as soon as it gets the three-leg walk down, he's gone, into the bush behind the railway tracks, where he is found some three days later starving. He is starving because three-legged dogs have a hard time running down four-legged rabbits. So like I said, he starves. Until, like I also said, 
Somebody finds him and brings him back to town where he's wined and dined and tied to a post until he gains about 15 pounds. Then he can't run away anymore, and someone builds him a wooden sled to keep his belly off the ground. And through all of this, the town bonds. They pull together again over this dog which one of them has disabled. But now the dog, through disability, has become a folk icon. And everyone is happy again, especially the dog, because he quickly figures out he only needs to eat the very best leftovers and he can go anywhere without getting his ass kicked. And for a while, everything is all peaches and cream. Until the dog starts biting people again, but now, of course, he can do no wrong. He is one with the town, and the town looks after its own. But, as fate would have it, he dies shortly thereafter at a fall fair pig out. The whole town mourns his passing and he is proudly buried at the Legion Hall like a fallen hero. And this is more or less how a small Ontario town used to operate. It made a mess and then took care of its mess, without outside help or intervention. They may have disagreements, but the problem and solutions are kept in-house. Chapter 12. Here comes Danny's car driving down a country road. We come up and in on the driver's side of the car. Danny will speak to us as he continues driving. So, I pulled together that Legion search party. A lot of good it did me. Like everything's all honky-dory for the first couple of beers. Then, like always, right around the third beer, things start to go sideways. That's when the so-called searchers move from let's get at it to let's have one more beer and think about it. And all this thinking about it ends up in Jerry Day's lap. And Jerry Day thinks he may have saw Sully getting on a train out of town. A train out of town. I point out to Jerry that Jerry must be seeing things because the train hasn't stopped in town, let alone pulled out of town in 10 years. This, for God knows what reason, fires Jerry up. Now he wants to know why the goddamn train doesn't stop here anymore. And to make matters worse, he gets the rest of the town clowns all jacked up too. Now they all want to know why the goddamn train doesn't stop here anymore. We need a train, a stopping train to bring in tourists. And who knows, maybe the sugar beet factory will get going again. Anything can happen, but not without a train. Something has to be done about this. And around and around we go. Somebody call AA. I have had enough. I'm out of there. I called off the search party before it even got going. Danny pulls his car into a new farmhouse. He gets out, picks up a shirt off the front seat of the car. So, with plan A gone up in smoke, I have moved into plan B and have recently, as about an hour ago, employed the services of our local channeler, Vera Lane. She'll find him. She's good. Real good. Found some missing dogs for me. True story. I'd given them up for dead and then I engaged Vera in a last dish effort. Oh, there she is now. Here she is coming out and report. Hey up Vera! That's the woman who found my dogs. Next town over, looking a little ass kicked, but still chasing cars. So with that kind of track record, I think we're in good hands. Besides, I have a great deal of faith in space-age thinking. 
And Vera is about as spaced out as they get. Chapter 13 We now find ourselves somewhere on another countryside road. Maynard is standing beside his police car. The police car's flashing lights are all on. Good morning. Nice to see you all this morning. Up until this point, I don't believe I've had the opportunity to say how happy and overwhelmed I am to find so many of you interested in police work. Thank you for your interest. Police work is an extremely rewarding vocation that favors the curious among us. In fact, being curious is probably the most important attribute that a new recruit can bring to the job of policing. You know, I myself came to this profession steeped in curiosity, as well as a healthy dose of just plain old-fashioned what-the-heck. Like that kind of what-the-heck. How did all of that get up there? All those stars and planets and Milky Ways. I'm very curious about things up there. In police work, the need for insatiable curiosity is closely followed by the joy of asking questions. The questioning of suspects is the very first tool in a police officer's arsenal of getting the job done. Excuse me. Yes. Yes. I'll check my monitor. Okay, we're on the job. We have a stolen vehicle report. So, let's go and check this out. Chapter 14 We come back up to the outside of Vera's farmhouse. Danny is still standing in the laneway. He has Sully's shirt in one hand. Vera is walking towards him. Look at that shirt. Just look at it. Now that is a shirt that has been worn and thrown around a bit, but loved all the same. That is another thing that has been lost in the shuffle of living in the moment. We wear clothes a couple of times and then buy something new. We don't love our clothing anymore. We have affairs with them. One night stands from Pakistan. Then in the morning we show them the door. We bore so easily and it's so demeaning. We never go all the way anymore with that shirt or that dress or that sweater. We never get to that point of being upset when we can't find them. We never get to that point of ironing them soft or darning them into old age and letting them become wise. We don't respect our clothes anymore. And a lack of respect spreads like an oil spill into every part of our lives. I got my gift from my mother, and my mother got her gift from her mother, and then the gift goes back to great and greater and greatest. So that makes channeling a runs-in-the-family gift. All women, never a man. In my family, the men aren't open to channeling. Like most men, they're just too busy being men. In fact, the only male channelers I ever met were full of the female. So maybe channelers have to have a goodly supply of the female. I don't know, but what I do know is this. 
that it seems like everybody thinks they're channelers. Most aren't. Most people like pleasing people. A real channeler doesn't please people. They don't run with the pack or cook out of cookbooks or trust get-togethers. We are not your everyday. We're all wallflowers waiting for that dance to start. But for us, it never does. But that's how everything works. We get ourselves all off to one side and alone, and then the answers come to us. Doors open up from somewhere deep and a way ahead is made clear. It all sounds very Sunday picnic happy, but it's not. It's lonely, and you wouldn't want to be me. Now, this shirt that I got here is where I start channeling. I need a piece of the missing person's worn and unwashed clothing, and I smell it. Each one of these smells tells me something, namely, what kind of body funk our missing person has got going on. How many times has this shirt been worn? Is this a first day funk or an accumulation of funk? I go for accumulation after the smell of soap has disappeared. A person's body odor tells all. It's more important than what they believe in. Beliefs come and go. Body odor never changes. All right, I see that. I see that some of you out there are rolling your eyes at all of this, but let me tell you, a person's smell is everything. Try sex with somebody whose funk does not line up with your funk. Can't work, won't work, never will. My advice? Put your clothes back on and go home. At this point, I will relieve Danny by telling him his father is still alive, just missing. This is not a suicide. People commit suicide for a lot of reasons, but the main reason is shame. We humans can live with any emotion except shame. Shame is the end of the line. We're all right here, so let's move along. This shirt also does not have a car wreck smell, or a death by farm machinery smell, or just an everyday heart attack smell. I'm not picking up any of those, but I am also not picking up where he is at. So I'm going to have to spend some time with this shirt. Wear it, stroke it, sleep with it until its vibrations are ready to tell where. Mr. Michael Sullivan got himself too.